Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to study your word. Father, thank you for the privilege of knowing you and the peace and joy that you can place in our hearts. Father, thank you for the rain outside that we desperately need. And Lord, that reminds us of our need of the Holy Spirit, which is often represented as the rains from heaven. Father, we pray that you would flood our hearts with your spirit today, just as you flooded the earth. Father, help our hearts and our minds to be drawn closer to heaven and help us to hear your voice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to be looking at what is a Christian part five, but looking at something a little bit different than we have. We're switching gears a tad bit. Last week we saw that, well, over the last four weeks, we've seen that Jesus has called us for a twofold purpose. And for the sake of not becoming an irritation to your ear, I didn't put the slide up on the screen, or maybe an eyesore, but it's the same verse that you've looked at repeatedly for the last four weeks, and some of you probably have it memorized by now, that says he appointed twelve that he might be with them, and they might send them, that he might send them forth to preach. And we realize that that's God's call for the Christian, that he's calling us to spend time with him and to go witnessing for him. And last week we looked at how can we preach on behalf of God? What are practical ways that we all in our individual lives can be a witness for God? And now this week, what I think is very crucial, how many of you can clearly see from the Bible that God is calling us to be with Him and to be a witness for Him? Is that clear to you? Now how many of you want to be an effective, successful witness for God? I don't think there's a person in this room who likes to fail. I, I still haven't met a person to this day who enjoys failure. And so what we want to look at this morning is how is it that we can be successful in the work of God. And as I was preparing this, I thought we would talk about the methods of evangelism that God lays out as being successful for His work. But as we were studying through that, the Lord brought me to some passages of Scripture that I believe hit a little closer to home and are a little more introspective of how we can be successful. And we'll get on to the methods a little bit later. But I want to start by way of introduction to look at two passages. One is what was just beautifully read for us for scripture reading. And then a second passage that's also familiar. And I want to try to understand this briefly. Now this first one comes from Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 verse 37 it says, Then he says to his disciples, The harvest truly is what? Plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send laborers into his harvest. Now, I don't know about you, but when I get the mental picture of this verse, do you guys picture things when you read it? You know, kind of an image comes to mind. I get the image of all the fields that are surrounding our church here today. Do you not? I mean, the tassels on the corn, and it, it just looks like things are ripe for the harvest. I'm not a farmer, so we'll ask Gary if it's really ready. But it looks like the harvest is plentiful, right? And that's the mental image that I get. And as Jesus looks out on the harvest of the earth, he sees people who are ripe for the harvest to go to heaven and to be harvested in by his workers. Now, I don't know about you, but that's an encouraging thought. If God's calling me to be a witness, I want to go where the work is readily to be done or where people are willing to accept it. Now, Jesus never says, just so we're not misunderstood, Jesus never says witnessing will be easy. You're familiar with that, right? Jesus doesn't say that it'll just be a walk in the park where you're just kind of collecting grain off the, the things and that's how you're harvesting. That's not what he's saying when the harvest is plentiful. But what he is saying is that there are people who are in the world who are ready to be harvested, right? So we just have to look for that ripe fruit. Now notice this passage too, Matthew chapter 28. 
Jesus says, he came, and this is, this is as he's getting ready to leave, it's the, the Great Commission. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all what? Authority has been given to who? To me, or to Jesus, in heaven and earth, go, what's that next word? What does therefore mean? Because of this. Go therefore and make disciples. Now this is interesting. Jesus tells us, number one, the harvest is plentiful. There are people who are longing to know the gospel. And number two, if some of you, have any of you ever been afraid, especially witnessing? I, maybe that's like every time for me, to be 100% honest. But when you go to share, sometimes you feel intimidated. And Jesus is saying, I want you to understand one thing. That I'm the most powerful being in heaven and on earth. And because I possess that power and authority, I want you to go. I'm deferring my authority to you so that you can go on behalf of me. Does that make sense? In other words, we're ambassadors of the most powerful being in the universe. Jesus also says in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, And you shall receive power, right, when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. So God tells us that the harvest is plentiful. He tells us that all authority is given to Him and that He's willing to bestow it to us. He tells us that He's willing to give us power. But let me just ask you a question. Here's where reality kicks in for some of us. How many of you feel like evangelism doesn't always feel like those three things are true? Can we be honest just for a moment? I mean, how many of you sometimes don't feel like the harvest is plentiful? Sometimes, I, I, I can't tell you place after place after place that I've been to, whether it's canvassing or pastoring or Bible work, there's always that neighborhood or that community that just can't be reached. Any of you ever heard people talk like that? Oh, well, and it, when I was in New Mexico, you know, well, don't go to that neighborhood because it's been worked so many times and no one is interested. Oh, well, that's really encouraging. Thanks. But Jesus also tells us that we're to get all nations, so I'm thinking I need to go to that neighborhood. Or we move to some churches and they say, well, you know, such and such a town, you can't go there because, you know, the religious affiliation, people just won't receive you. And you start to think, man, was Jesus lying when he said that the harvest was plentiful and the laborers are few? And I remember Bible working for a year and a half. This is 11 years ago. I was Bible working as my part-time job, so 20 hours a week knocking on doors or giving Bible studies. If we had enough Bible studies, we didn't knock on doors, but typically I needed to knock on doors, if that makes sense. So I remember knocking on doors in a community and it would seem like people would accept Bible studies and we'd study together once, twice, three times, four times, sometimes a little bit longer. And then before you know it, they kind of fizzle out. And then you do it again. Okay, Lord, the harvest is plentiful, the labors are few. And you, you just keep working. And I remember after a year and a half, I told my mother, I said, I think I'm going to resign from my job because I don't want to waste the money of the church. I mean, really, if the church is paying me to reach souls and I feel like I can't do it, I don't understand what's wrong, but there must be an issue. Now, praise the Lord, after that time, there was a whole family that was brought into the church. So God does have mercy. But the point that I'm making is sometimes, even though we're reading the words of Jesus, the harvest is plentiful, all authority is given, you shall receive power, and you're thinking, man, this is going to be great. And then we hit into reality. And the question that comes to my mind over and over again is, well, then how can I be a successful witness? Did you know that Jesus had, didn't call us to be witnesses just as a punishment for us? You aware of that? You know, Jesus didn't just say, go, to, go there for it. The harvest is plentiful and he's painting this mirage. And as you go for it, you just hit a brick wall every time. That's not what Jesus is doing. 
But Jesus truly is sending us to be missionaries. And not just failures of missionaries, but effective missionaries. And how many of you are thankful for that? So the question is, how is it, what does the Bible tell us will help us to be effective witnesses for the Lord? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to invite, to, invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to look at a few stories in Scripture that share with us why some Christians were not able to be successful witnesses for Jesus. And I hope that as we look at these stories and as we look at some of the positive injunctions, we will be able to see very clearly how it is that we can be successful witnesses for the Lord. So Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. Matthew chapter 17, as the chapter begins, some of you are familiar with how it starts. Jesus is up on a mountain, and we call that the Mount of Transfiguration. Right? The glory of the Lord comes down. We see Elijah, Elijah and Moses who come. And there's three disciples with Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And as they go through this experience, they experience the glory of the Lord, and they see the divinity of Jesus flashing through, right? Well, during that time, and as you, if you take the time to read through the Matthew account and the Mark account and Luke account of what we're getting ready to read, while Jesus was up on the mountain, the other nine disciples were down below, and there was a group of people coming around. And the disciples ran into an interesting scenario, and notice what happens. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, Jesus, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not what? Cure him. Now just to be clear of what Jesus is dealing with, notice verse 18, it says, And Jesus rebuked the what? The demon. So this boy who's struggling with epilepsy is not just going through a physical illness, but he's struggling with demon possession. And Jesus is approached by this man who says, Lord, please, my son needs spiritual healing, right? He's bound by the devil, and we need him to have deliverance. We brought him to your nine disciples, and what did the disciples do? Well, they weren't able to cure him. Now, my question this morning is, why weren't the disciples able to cure this boy? Notice Matthew chapter 10. Keep your, keep your place in Matthew chapter 17. We're going right back. But this is Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 through 8. And this is where Jesus first gives the first commission to the 12 disciples and their first mission trip. And notice what Jesus specifically commissions them to do. It says, These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, saying, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter the city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, preach, saying... The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, and what's the next one? Cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Now let me ask you the question. Is the reason why the nine disciples were not able to cast the demon out of this young boy because Jesus never intended for them to be able to deliver people from demons? Is that the reason? That was a very long question. The question is this. Did Jesus give the disciples or offer them the power to be able to deliver people from demon possession? Yes. 
So then why couldn't they do it this time? Why did this poor young man who's suffering for spiritual health, why was he not able to receive it? Well, notice how Jesus continues on to explain the story. After this, and we're not going to take time to read the whole story, Jesus delivers this young boy. And if you read through the Mark and the Luke account, you realize that the faith of the Father is starting to waver because Jesus' disciples weren't able to heal him. And so the Father says to Jesus, Lord, if, if you can, heal my son. And Jesus says, I, I can if you have faith. And the man cries out in anguish of soul and says, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. You're familiar with that passage. And Jesus, having compassion and mercy upon this child, delivers him from the demon. Now notice where we pick up the story. If, if I was you, or if I was one of those nine disciples, there would be one question in my mind, and that would be, why? Why can you do it, but we couldn't? Didn't you ask us to do it, and now we, did you just set us up for failure, Lord? Notice this. Matthew chapter 17, verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately, saying, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and what? Fasting. Now can you imagine being a disciple? Praise the Lord, the Lord did this in private. And as they're coming to Jesus, Jesus, why is it that we couldn't cast this demon out? Jesus says, it, it's an issue with your faith. Your belief, your religious experience, it's, it's not where it can be or should be. These kinds only come out with prayer and fasting. In other words, to deliver someone spiritually is, is much more than what meets the eye. There's a controversy going on, and you must have a strong faith in order for this to take place. Notice this quote. This is from Desire of Ages, talking about those nine disciples while Jesus was up on the mountain. And it says, Instead of strengthening their faith by prayer and meditation on the words of Christ... They had been dwelling on their what? Discouragements and personal grievances. In this state of darkness, they had undertaken the conflict with Satan. And in order to succeed in such a conflict, they must come to the work in a different what? Spirit. Their faith must be strengthened by fervent prayer and fasting and humiliation of heart. They must be emptied of self and be filled with the Spirit and power of God. Now this is incredible. The reason why the disciples could not be the witness and offer the spiritual healing that was so necessary for this young boy was not because Jesus didn't commission it. It wasn't because God didn't provide the power to do it. But the reality was is that their spiritual experience had become distracted by discouragement. Some of us can relate to that. By personal grievances, and we'll talk more about that in a moment. And they were so filled with self that there was no room to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, in compassion, tells them that these ones must come out by prayer and fasting. Now I want to look at one more story. 
That's found in Matthew chapter 17, what we just looked at. And now go to Acts chapter 19. You'll notice, as you probably already have, I don't like to build a case just on one story. And I want to understand, is this a consistent thing in Scripture? Is it really a spiritual lack that can cause us to be failures in witnessing? And the converse, if we're strongly connected to the Lord, can we have the ability to be successful witnesses? And notice this, in Acts chapter 19, this is a little bit of a different context, not talking about the disciples this time, but you'll get the story as we read through the passage. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, notice what it says. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the disease left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Now is that unbelievable? How many of you, if it wasn't written in the Bible and someone just told you that, you would say, yeah, right. I mean, this is like, are you serious? Anything that's come into contact with Paul, if you take that off and you lay it on a sick person, they're healed? I mean, that's some incredible power. Now, we know that the power wasn't in Paul himself, right? And notice what the people recognized the power was in. Notice how it continues. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, this is verse 13, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits. Now, this is what Paul was doing, right? His power came because of the name of the Lord, not himself. So they call upon them and they say, We exercise you by the, by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, who did so. Um, who did so. And this evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of the house naked and, what does it say? Wounded. Now this is, this is an interesting point. Paul was successful in his ministry because he ministered in the name of the Lord. Isn't that what you would gather from that passage? And people seeing the success of Paul's ministry thought, man, he's calling on the name of the Lord, and the Lord works miracles for these people. Man, we could really make a business out of this, or we could really, you know, get people on our side too. Why don't we start doing things in the name of the Lord? So as they go to minister in the name of the Lord, they're confronted with an evil spirit, and the evil spirit says, well, I'm familiar with Jesus. Yeah, we realize he's, he's not one that we like. I, I'm familiar with Paul. Yeah, he's, he's promoting opposite of what we're promoting. But who in the world are you? And their witnessing experience left them beat up and bruised. Now some of us feel like our witnessing experiences leave us beat up and bruised. But the reason could be because oftentimes we hear the name of the Lord, we might go forward in the name of the Lord, but we don't have that living vital connection with the Lord that we're speaking of. Isn't that the difference between Paul and the Jewish itinerant exorcists? It wasn't because Jesus wasn't willing to give them power. It was because they didn't have that living connection with Jesus that was so necessary. My friends, the Bible tells us very clearly in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, that we wrestle not against what? Flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hopes of wickedness in heavenly places. And when we go out to witness for God, you might say, well, you just used two examples of demon possession. You know, that's not really equal with witnessing. 
But let me ask you a question. Who are you contending with when someone's believing a lie and believing error and not accepting the truth of Jesus? It's Satan. Now you're, and, and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying those who aren't following Jesus are purposefully following the devil. That's not what I'm saying. Some of them knowingly are. But some people don't even realize the forces of darkness that are enshrouding them that's keeping them from accepting the light of Jesus. And when we go up and try to reach people in a Jesus that we know has power but we're not connected to him, my friends, we're going to be confronted just like the people were in Acts chapter 19. Well, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And could it be that the reason why we have so little success in our witnessing and could it be the reason that God wants us to have success in our witnessing would come first and primarily from having a living connection with Christ? Now you might say, this is so fundamental, Pastor. I can't believe you just like keep repeating the same thing. But I can't tell you how many times I've failed. And you can't tell me how many times you've failed in witnessing. And there's nothing more discouraging than failure. Are, am I right? I mean, how many of you enjoy just failing over and over and over again? And when we fail so frequently, we start to question, well, maybe it's a harvest problem. Maybe no one's interested. Well, that's not, Jesus doesn't tell us that's a problem. Well, maybe it's because I don't have the Spirit of God. Well, the Spirit of God is just as willing to help you as he was the apostles in Acts. Well, maybe I don't have the authority. You know, I just don't have that charismatic way about me. Well, Jesus says, all authority I'll give to you. And you start to think, man, Lord, what, what's my shortcoming? And if we're honest enough with ourselves, not in the discouraging self-abasement just out of being mean to ourselves, but if we're honest, we could say, Lord, could it be that I don't have the living connection with Christ like I need? Could it be that I need the power of Jesus to fill my heart so that I know how to share the truth with others? The reason I'm telling you this this morning is not to rebuke anyone, but it's to encourage us that even if we failed a thousand times, if we had a living connection with Christ, things could be different from now on. God could redeem the time that we've lost, and God could reach people that maybe we've failed to reach before. And if we had this living connection, God could do great things. You know, Luke chapter 24 is where Jesus gives the Gospel Commission. Can anyone quote the Gospel Commission from Luke chapter 24? That's only to say we're not very familiar with it. Correct? We're, we're familiar with the Gospel Commission in Matthew chapter 28. Right? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're familiar with that. But when we come to the Great Commission, as it's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, we may not be as familiar. But notice what Luke brings out that some of the other Gospel writers don't include that helps us to understand the importance of the point that we just looked at. Luke chapter 24, verse 46. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are what? Witnesses to these things. Now this is how Luke is understanding when Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, right? Look, there's a work to do and you are my witnesses. You're called to go. But notice what Luke includes. Verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. But, what's that next word? Tarry. Now, 
Can you imagine being a tad bit confused if you were a disciple? Jesus says, go therefore, right? I mean, that's what we, we find as we stitch these passages together, Matthew and Mark and Luke, and we put it together. Go therefore and make disciples. Okay, okay, we, we got it. We're, we're going to go. We're, we're terrified. You know, they, they just killed you, but we, we'll go. And then Jesus says, but wait. But wait for what? But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. My friends, could it be that we, like the other disciples, only take part of a commission? We hear Jesus say, go, and we think, okay, well, it's our obligation, our duty, which it surely is. And we realize through the messages we've looked at for the last few weeks that, yes, the Lord has laid the burden of reaching souls on church members and pastors alike. And that's found in Christian Service, page 69. And we see all of these things, and we think, okay, Lord, you're calling me to go. I'm just going to go. But before we go, do you think it's just as important that we stay and get imbued with the power of God before we go. Now some people think, man, Pastor, I'm so glad you bring up this point. This is exactly why I don't go. I mean, can we be, I, I'm just telling you how selfish my human nature is. These are the thoughts that go through my head. As a pastor, you love to discover new truth that releases you from duty, right? I mean, that's, that's the reality of what we are as humans. But Jesus didn't say just wait endlessly and, and sing songs and chant to yourselves and turn yourself into a little monastery, right? We've already looked at that. Jesus calls Christians for two reasons, to be with him and to go for him. The point this morning is that maybe the reason why we haven't seen the grand success that God has longed for us to have is not because the commission is wrong, not because our methods are wrong, not because our truth is wrong, but maybe it's because our hearts aren't connected to the source of strength. Could it be? Notice this quotation. The Savior knew that no argument, however logical, would melt hard hearts or break through the crust of worldliness and selfishness. Have you guys figured this out to be true? You ever tried to argue with someone, argue them into the truth? How well does it go? He knew that his disciples must receive the heavenly endowment. That the gospel would be effective, what's that next word? Only as it was proclaimed by hearts made warm and lips made eloquent by a living knowledge of him who is the way, the truth, and the life. The work committed to the disciples would require great efficiency for the tide of evil ran deep and strong among, against them. A vigilant, determined leader was in command of the forces of darkness, and the followers of Christ could battle for the right only through the help that God, by His Spirit, would give them. Now, does this make sense? Do you understand in this context now why Jesus says, I want you to go, but I want you to tarry a little bit first? Notice, Jesus doesn't use the word, I want you to just stay here. But there needed to be that pause, that moment, that connection with Christ, so that the disciples could gain the power that can only be given through the Spirit of God, so that they can be effective. You know, we often marvel at Acts chapter 2, and we think, man, how is it that 2,000 people were, being, were converted in one day? And you know, I've heard all sorts of interesting things as to why people believe the disciples were better witnesses than we are today. Have you ever heard anything? Here's some that I hear. Well, life was different back then. And you, you, don't, you know, they didn't have to like work and provide for families in the same way that we do today. Now let me just ask you a question. Were they humans? Do humans have to provide for their family? 
Do humans need to work? Do humans have natural human tendencies and needs and necessities? Absolutely. So is that really the point as to why they were able to do such grand good for the Lord? Well, no. And then some people say, well, people are different today. You know, back then in that culture, you could just preach and people were way more accepting to hearing about Jesus. Well, let me just repaint the picture for you, the context of Acts chapter 2. When Peter stood up to preach, the last thing that the vast multitudes had heard about Jesus was that he was of the son, the devil, that he was a blasphemer, that he should be crucified. This wasn't just the priests and the scribes idea, but the vast majority of people joined along in that same chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And now you're going to tell me that just after 50 days that their society was easier to reach than ours? How many of you would rather go door-to-door here in Vassar or door-to-door there in Jerusalem and that time right after Jesus was crucified? I'm just putting it into comparison. They just killed the God of Christianity versus 2,000 years later where people are at least open to listening a little bit or they have a version of it. I'm not saying we don't have challenges, but what I am saying is that their life was not drastically different than our situation today. The reason why the disciples were so successful was not because of different circumstances in evangelism, not because of different methods or a different truth, but the reason why they were effective is because they had an Acts chapter 1 experience. And we're going to look at that a little bit. Acts chapter 1 is where God called them to wait. We find that call again given in Acts chapter 1 verse 4. The disciples then go to Jerusalem and they gather together and they pray. And they didn't just pray for a few minutes. But how long were they gathered there? Do you guys remember? Well, we had 40 days that Jesus was with them, right? You know, re-educating. But then after Jesus leaves, there were 10 days. About 50 days total, right? A couple numbers to keep straight. So for 10 days, these disciples are there praying with one another. That was enough to continue to reroute them in this connection with Christ, right? This is the point we've already seen. But there's something else that happened in Acts chapter 1 that made them powerful witnesses, and that's something we haven't discussed yet, but we're going to look at briefly. They righted the wrongs that they had with others. Now we might say, well, no, no, I just want to be a powerful witness. You know, I want a connection with God just between Him and I. Why are we bringing other people into this? I want, I want you to remember what this looks like in the life of the disciples. If you have your Bibles, just turn to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 44. Why is it important to right wrongs that we have with others? Luke chapter 9, verse 44. We're going to get a little bit of a glimpse of the disciples here that we might have forgotten about. Sometimes we think of the 12 disciples as the 12 best friends in our minds. Um, But there's a reason why they're never called that in Scripture. They weren't the best friends. They didn't just get along. They all all weren't just happy with one another and loved working for Jesus and were just gung-ho evangelists. That's not what we find. But notice what we do find in Luke chapter 9, verse 44. Let these words sink down into your ears. This is Jesus speaking. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now what is Jesus describing here? What about his crucifixion, right? Jesus is telling his disciples, hey, I want you to understand this. Let this settle down into your minds. I'm about to be betrayed in the hands of sinful men. 
Now to us, we know the crucifixion happened, so it's easier to look back and see that. But notice the reaction of the disciples in verse 45. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them, so that they did not, what? Perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about the saying. Well, we can all relate to that. How many of you have read something in Scripture that you didn't understand right off? So we understand what it's like to not fully get it. But notice what their reaction is. Verse 46. Then a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be the what? Now, does this just blow your mind sometime? Are you so thankful you have a merciful Father and a merciful Savior like Jesus? Jesus is trying to communicate eternal truths to them that are going to bring them comfort and strength through this difficult time. But the disciples start to look at each other. You know what he's saying? No, I don't know what he's saying. Well, do you know what he's saying? Peter, you're supposed to know what he's saying. You know everything, right? Well, I don't know it. Well, you know what, Peter? The one thing that I do know is that I'm going to be greater than you are in the kingdom. I mean, we don't know exactly how this went down, but in this same conversation, we don't get this whole suffering thing, but what I do know is I'm better than you. And the disciples start to argue amongst themselves and to dispute as to who is the greatest. Now, how effective of a witness can you be in that time? If you're arguing amongst yourselves, your witness is hindered. And notice this quotation. This comes from giving us a sneak peek into what was happening in the upper room in Acts chapter 1. Acts the Apostles, page 37. This is what the disciples began to pray for. The disciples prayed with intense earnestness for a fitness to meet men in their daily intercourse. Oh, and in their daily intercourse, forgive me, to speak words that would lead sinners to Christ. Putting away all what? And all desire for supremacy. This is exactly what we just saw. It was their issue, right? In Luke chapter 9. They came close together in Christian fellowship. My friends, sometimes we don't know what to pray for, even for 10 minutes. And here these disciples are gathered together for 10 days. Notice it's not just an individual prayer meeting. This is a corporate thing. And how much more do we need corporate time together in prayer and Bible study? But as these disciples are there, they begin to pray not just for themselves, but they realize the great commission that was just given. And how would you feel knowing that your Lord and Savior was just crucified? Yes, He's ascended to heaven, but now your job is to extend His work? And that's a little intimidating. And as they see the commission, they begin to plead with the Lord, Lord, help us to be able to reach these people. But then as they're praying about that, the Lord starts to reveal to them, in order to reach people, maybe you need to lay aside your differences with one another. And I wonder if we would see greater success in our work today if we not only had a living connection with Christ, but we were also willing to right the wrongs that we have with others. Does this make sense? Do you think that this is what brought power to the disciples? I would encourage you to trace it through to study Acts chapter 1. We'll hopefully take time to do it at some other point. Read through Acts of the Apostles chapter 3 and 4 titled The Great Commission and Pentecost, I believe are the chapter titles. And as you look at those, you're going to see that, man, the thing that brought the success for the disciples was nothing more than a living connection with Christ and their willingness to right those wrongs with those around them. Now, I don't know about you, but I've been a Christian long enough and I've been a human long enough to realize that it's very common for there to be issues in a church. You're familiar with that, right? How many of you have been to other churches before and it seems like sometimes you go church hopping because you realize that every church you go to has issues? 
And one of the main issues, I'm speaking for myself, is that I'm there. And if I go to a new church, I, I don't know if you've ever talked to people like this, but they say, Pastor, I just can't find the right church. Wherever I go, people are X, Y, and Z. And you start to think, man, the only common denominator is yourself. And I'm not pointing the finger at anyone. I know that to be true for myself. Are you honest enough to know that you have shortcomings? Or are you proud enough to say, well, everyone else is the problem? No, I, I have problems. And so when we're looking at, well, in order to be a successful witness, we need a living connection with Christ, and we need to right the wrongs with others, you start to think, yeah, I told sister so-and-so she needed to... No, no, no. It's not just sister so-and-so who needs to right the wrongs. But maybe you have offended someone else. The Bible says if your brother has something against you, even if you were the one offended by something, maybe it's time for you to seek reconciliation. And God tells us that through this process, it strengthens the bond of unity. You know, the Bible elsewhere calls the church or gives the illustration of the church as the body. You're familiar with that, right? In Ephesians. Christ is the head and we are the body. And how well would your body work if your arms and your fingers didn't agree with each other? It doesn't, it doesn't function, right? Your legs won't go where you, your brain tells it to and your arms don't move properly and you can't get the food to your mouth and it's, you're just dying. Well, how do you think it happens spiritually? The same thing. We wonder, Lord, I can't figure out why we're not successful in evangelism. We spent X amount of dollars and we did this project and we did that project and nothing seems to work. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a cycle that Jesus lays out to be effective and we'll discuss that more later. But could it be that we have the same problem going on as if your body wasn't cooperating together? That we can't come together and function? And so Jesus is telling us these things not to discourage us and to say, well, look, you haven't had a living connection and you've had wrongs between yourselves. But he's telling us, brothers and sisters, if you feel like you've failed over and over again and you feel the call of God to be a witness, but yet you're so intimidated because of your past experience, he says, try this. A living, vibrant connection with Christ, righting those wrongs that stand between you and others, and you're going to see success in your labor for the Lord. Now God's going to continue to train us, praise the Lord, and give us more tools and more tips of how we can be effective. But these are two major things for us. The last point I want to bring you to is one that's closely related to this. Some of us feel like we have a close connection with the Lord. And some of us feel like we have nothing between us and a brother or sister, but we don't realize that we're a constant offense. And that may not be you. You can, you know, have peace. It doesn't mean everyone is like that. But how many of you realize that we don't even know our hearts? You understand that? We might have the world's best intentions. I'm not here to point fingers at anyone or to question your motives or anything like that. I might have the very best intentions... But what I know is my heart is desperate and deceitfully wicked. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9. So in order for me to be effective, maybe I need to do the very same thing that the disciples did. Notice this quotation. This is also from that same chapter describing the upper room. It says the days of preparation, these are those ten days of prayer, were days of deep what? Heart searching. The disciples felt their spiritual need. They cried to the Lord for the holy unction that was to fit them for the work of soul saving. They did not ask for a blessing for themselves merely. They were weighted with the burden of the salvation of souls. They realized that the gospel was to be carried to the world. And they claimed the power that Christ had promised. Now isn't this powerful? 
I think many of us can relate. By God's grace, we're starting to have a burden for souls. Can you imagine eternity without your loved ones there? Can you imagine eternity without your neighbor there? And you might think, yeah, that neighbor I could. But when you know that you can make the transforming difference in his life through the power of the gospel, can you imagine eternity without that person who's checked you out at the store week after week? And when you hear those blood-curdling words, why did you never tell me? Our hearts begin to be pricked when we see the loving Savior who not only thought salvation was a good idea, but it was the best and only plan that he was willing to lay down his life for. And our loving Savior cries in his last words to his people when he looks at the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He says, I want you to go and make disciples. My friends, this is the burden the disciples had. They're humbled. They don't see anything good in themselves to be able to carry forward this work. But as they hear the words of Jesus, they realize their shortcoming, and they say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Like David, I can imagine their cry going forth similar to what Psalm 139 says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the what? Way everlasting. My friends, is the Lord willing to do this for us? Do you think the Lord is willing to reveal those things that are standing between us and faithful witnesses? Between us and being effective for Him? Could it be that God wants us, as we dwell upon these three points, to have a living, vibrant, however many more adjectives you can think of, connection with Jesus? That He wants us to set aside those wrongs? And that doesn't mean you put constant error away but that you're willing to try to find reconciliation through the process the Lord has laid out for us. And that you would be willing to say, Lord, search my heart. And that you would help Him in that process. You would spend time. Lord, please, bring to mind those very things that are offensive to you. Now, my friends, the reason why I bring this up today is because I don't know about you, but I would guess you believe the very same thing. And it's that I truly, honestly, not because I'm paid, I believe that Jesus is coming soon. I believe you probably believe something similar. That's why we believe it so much. We joined a group called Seventh-day Adventists because we wanted it to be prominent in our faith. And there's something that struck me as I was... I put this last slide there because I like to be reminded of the second coming. But I began to stare at this piece by Nathan Green and... As I was looking at it, there was something different that caught my eye this time. You know, typically I'm drawn up to seeing Jesus in the clouds and thinking, what a blessed hope we have, which is absolutely right. But this time I started to look around here. And I started to think, I wonder how many of those people would or wouldn't be there as a result of our witness. You understand what I'm saying? I wonder how many people in that pit, and I know this is just a picture, but I mean really when the day comes, when Jesus comes back and we see something similar, I wonder how many people are going to stand by us as we get ready to go to heaven and say, Brother Gary or Sister So-and-So, I am so thankful for your labor for the Lord because this is the reason that I'm going to heaven today. And I began to think, Lord, you've given the commission. Is the commission clear? Could Jesus get much clearer? 
Go and make disciples. Then what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Well, how do I make disciples? Well, you're going to teach them all things that I've commanded you. Okay, I got that. And don't worry, I'm with you forever. That's what Jesus says, right? Not words hard to be understood. But too often times, do we dismiss the commission, either because we don't carry the burden, or because we're afraid of failure. My friends, I believe the Lord has placed us here as a church to reach this community. Not just in a figurative, spiritual, authorial sense that you will never actually practically see. Sure, there will be influences that you have on people that, we won't, that won't be recognized till the kingdom. You understand that. But I believe that the Lord is calling us to be a witness to people so that they can come into God's church and then to become workers for Him to spread His news to other people. Is that not the picture we're given? Go and make disciples, and then those disciples make more disciples who make more disciples. And this is not selfish purposes. The only reason we're motivated to do this is because of what Jesus has done in our behalf. And if Jesus, who loved me so much, entrusted me with such a humbling responsibility to share the truth of the gospel with others, then by His grace I'm willing to do it with a living, abiding connection with Him, by setting differences aside, and by allowing Him to search my heart and point out those things that might stand between me and an effective ministry. And as I look at this picture, I truly believe that not only Jesus is coming, but it is soon. I mean, really. How much longer can this world last? And my friends, sometimes it's good for us just to be confronted with heavenly realities that what else matters in life? This world won't matter. Your 401k won't matter. Your paycheck won't matter. Your hobbies won't matter. All that matters is those souls that you can bring to the kingdom. And my prayer is that by God's grace, we would be effective witnesses for Him. How many of you this morning want to say, Lord, I want to be effective? I don't want to just be a witness, but I want to be an effective witness. Is that your prayer? I mean, Lord, and I see some practical ways of doing it. And maybe it means, Lord, I know that I've been neglecting that time with you. Father, please help me. Do you think God is willing to help us spend that time with Him that we need? Absolutely. Do you think God is willing to help us iron out those situations that are sticky in life? Absolutely. Do you think God is willing to help reveal those things that bring us misery and that bring Him misery? Absolutely. My friends, God is willing to help us to be successful witnesses. And how many of you say, Lord, in faith, you think of that man whose son was sick with the spiritual illness of demon possession. And you hear his question to Jesus, Lord, if you can, do something. And you realize that sometimes in your witnessing life, you've often repeated words like that man did. Well, Lord, if you could do something, or you could do something, and we realize that it's really because of my unbelief why the Lord can't work. And if you want to say this morning, Lord, I believe that your work can be finished on this earth, but help my unbelief. And Lord, I'm willing to cooperate with you, but it's going to be nothing short of a divine miracle. I want to invite you to stand this morning as we sing our closing song. And say, Lord, I'm going to reach out through the hand of faith and believe that Jesus can make us a successful witness for him.
Father, we sing that song this morning, not out of a boastful recognition of our own ability, but Lord, out of a humble faith of what you can do through your servants. Father, we believe that the harvest is plentiful and that you're really just in need of laborers. Father, the issue has never been with your power or your calling or your message, but it's only been a labor shortage. Father, we pray that you would help empower us as your laborers this week, that we would be connected with the living Christ, that you would have abiding in our hearts. Father, that we would be willing to set aside those things that we've done that have wronged others or where they have wronged us. And Father, may we allow you to search our heart as the psalmist said. Father, we may let go of those things that are only injuring us and wounding us. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you for the promise of a mighty harvest. We pray that you would help us to be faithful in your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.